In 2015, almost 60 years of conventional medical practice was legally challenged in a landmark case regarding consent to treatment. This is a change in the law. There's no debate about that. The judges have been very clear. It was a Supreme Court case of seven judges being unanimous, which is almost unheard of. In the past, we as surgeons were there to deliver the surgery. Now what we're suggesting is that we should be there to have the conversation which will assist the patient in making the decision as to whether the procedure is the correct thing for them. I'm Murray Anderson-Wallace and in the next three podcasts I'll be exploring the legal, ethical and practical implications of the judgment and discussing the new guidance produced by the Royal College of Surgeons on consent, supported decision making. The law is now very clear and from the legal point of view we have to comply but there is evidence to show that patients are more satisfied, there's a reduction in complaints and there's certainly fewer medical legal cases. That was Leslie Hamilton, a Director of Professional Affairs and Council Member of the Royal College of Surgeons. Yes, the Holland test goes back in fact to 1957 and was about consent, but the judge said in its very famous judgment, the doctor is not guilty of negligence if he has acted in accordance with the practice accepted as proper by a responsible body of medical men skilled in that particular art. So in other words, we as doctors could decide what we told patients. And if other doctors didn't disclose risks to the patients, then we didn't have to either. So we were allowed to decide what the patient would be told. That was followed up by a case called Sidaway, where one of the five judges in Law Lords objected to the fact that doctors should be allowed to decide. And he raised the issue of whether patients should be allowed to decide what they were told. And so that was the first step along the way. There have been a number of cases since, but Montgomery has really now sealed that and come the full circle. And the judges pointed out that they're not saying anything in Montgomery than the GMC have laid down in good medical practice, which we should have been following. But how big an issue is this for practicing surgeons and what are the real risks? If you talk to the medical defence organisations, 60-70% of cases have an element of consent difficulties in them. I'm already hearing and seeing cases coming through the clinical negligence system of solicitors referring to the Montgomery judgment. So I think it will be an increasing issue. And that's why the college wants to produce this guidance so that we're ahead of the game. The judges identified the need for surgeons to specifically focus on how risks are presented to patients. They said a material risk has to be disclosed to the patient. And they made the point that it cannot be reduced to percentages. In the past, we said, if it was more than 1% or if it was very serious, then you would tell the patient. But the judges made it clear that not only was the nature of the risk an issue, but the effect on the life of that patient, that particular patient, if it occurred, and the importance to the patient of the benefits of the treatment and the alternatives available. The dramatisation that follows is based on two real medico-legal case studies involving consent. It aims to explore the principles of the Montgomery judgment and illustrate the important shifts in practice that are now required to work within the law. Glad we could meet again, Mr Roberts, to talk these things through, and this is... Claire, my daughter. We've all been really worried about him, and you're a bit of a worrier too, aren't you, Dad? But it's time to put a stop to all the pain he's been suffering with the angina. Naturally I worry. I mean, open-heart surgery... It's a big thing, isn't it? Of course it is, but it's very routine these days and really nothing to be worried about. I think you did one for my mother-in-law last year. Mrs Henderson? Yes, I, I do lots of these operations. A triple bypass. She recovered really well. Well, that's one of the options that we have before us today. Uh, Mr Roberts, you are 
78? 79, actually. According to your notes here, you are in generally good health for your age, but your scan has shown us that these heart problems are now life-threatening. Now, we have two main options in front of us, three if you count doing nothing at all, which I really can't recommend in your case. The first option involves major surgery, where in effect we replace the affected arteries in your heart with some that we harvest from your leg. The second is percutaneous coronary intervention, often referred to as angioplasty. Now I've heard of that, but I'm not really quite sure what that means. Angioplasty is when we widen your arteries using what is basically a balloon, a balloon catheter which is carefully inserted into your arteries, inflated to widen them, then deflated and withdrawn. I should say, however, our multidisciplinary team have discussed the matter, and our conclusion is that although angioplasty would help with the angina pain, surgery will give you the chance of living longer. So when you say surgery, you mean a heart bypass? Yes. We bypass the blockage in your heart by using a long vein taken from your leg. There's also another approach called total arterial revascularization, that's TAR for short, where we use arteries from your chest and arm, and that is my preferred approach in cases like yours. I'm not so sure about I think that's what Phil's mum had done. It's not really as bad as it sounds. Well, I was going to say I'd rather have the balloon thing. But if you say I would live longer... PCI is certainly less invasive, but if you want to go that route, then you need to discuss the detail with your cardiologist, not me. Surgery, however, would increase your chance of living longer. Nothing is guaranteed, of course, but survival rates are 97%. That sounds good, doesn't it, Dad? 97%? I suppose so. Don't say it like that, Dad. You can't just give up if there's an operation that will help you live longer, surely? I don't want to underplay the seriousness of the procedure. It is a major operation and there are chances of complications, like wound infection, about 5% experience bleeding requiring a return to theatre, and there is also a small chance of having a stroke. Some people also find the recovery quite challenging, but overall it is regarded as a very safe and effective procedure. I do three or four of them a week sometimes. What do you think, Dad? I'm not sure. I really don't like the thought of being out of action for a long time. But if that's your recommendation, Doctor, and if you think it's the best thing, Claire, I mean, it would be good to see the kids grow up. You know how much I love playing with them now. I know. And they love it too, Dad. All right. I suppose so, yes. Excellent. So we'll proceed then with total arterial revascularization, and I'll book you in just as soon as I can. That's great. I'm sure we've made the right decision. I asked senior figures at the Royal College of Surgeons for their opinions on this case study, particularly to comment on whether it meets the new legal requirements established by the Montgomery Judgment. Claire Marks, President of the Royal College of Surgeons. He accepts the daughter coming along and pushing her father, but actually he, the surgeon, might try and make sure that the daughter doesn't push too hard because she doesn't have any knowledge at all apart from the mother-in-law who was lucky enough to have a good outcome. Sue Hill is a consultant vascular surgeon and council member. The, the family will be worried about what's wrong with their relative. The surgeon will be trying to clarify everything, but might come from a position where he or she feels the patient should have surgery 
and the patient themselves then finds themselves badgered from both sides. It's very subtle. Leslie Hamilton. It's certainly very clear in the Mental Capacity Act the patient has to make a decision free of the influence of anybody else. They have to be acting voluntarily. So that's very clear from the capacity side. From the practical point of view as a surgeon, you want a relative or some support there for the patient in the clinic because there's a lot to take in. Uh, you want them to feel they've got some support and to be able to discuss afterwards what was actually said. And it's a balance between not allowing undue influence and the patient making their own decision. And that's, again, a question of surgical judgment and communication skills. What would be better would be more explanation of the alternatives of angioplasty and can't pass the book off to the cardiologist under Montgomery. Maybe not jump in at the beginning with the MDT recommendation, keep that to the end when the patient's trying to weigh up the options. And if they say to you, what would you do or that, I think is when you bring in the MDT and say, well, actually, we have discussed your case. We think, I'm, you know, for the following reasons, surgery would be better. But then he didn't go into the morbidity associated with TAR and didn't find out about the patient's lifestyle and what was important to him. Claire Marks. And he uses very sort of emotive language. This is life-threatening now. Well, what is the risk to his life right now? Is it 5% in a year? If it's 5% in a year and the risk of surgery is 5% in a year, you know, how about playing off that balance? Would this have passed the Bolam test? Oh, yeah. This, to me, is a good reflection of what I think happens normally. You know, you throw a bit of information at the patient and say, here, sign the form. Or not even sign the form, you wait till they come into hospital. Would it pass Montgomery? No, for the reasons we've talked about. I think it passes the Bolam test, because the Bolam test says, what would any other reasonable doctor in the same situation do? And the answer is, you know, I'd tell him that he's got life-threatening vascular disease and his best option is to have some surgery. And I've told him what the risks are, so it doesn't pass the Montgomery test then. I mean, clearly the legal context has changed. It is the law now. To what extent do you think that will be the motivator for surgeons to change their practice? Well, there's a danger in that because if something is a law and if somebody doesn't want to change, what they will do is they will say, it is the law that I tell you this and that we have this conversation. And that is going to be really counterproductive. So the law has changed, yes, but unless I really understand why that had to happen, then I'm never going to make the changes that I really need to make this a, a valid process. So, if expensive and career-limiting litigation is to be avoided, surgeons need to make subtle but important changes to their practice. But what do these changes look like? What are the benefits beyond the law? And how should surgeons deal with the inevitable dilemmas that will accompany these changes? In our next podcast, we'll examine these questions, learn how Mr Roberts' surgery went, and explore the implications for our fictitious surgeon. Mr Roberts was played by Lionel Guyot, Claire by Hilary Greatorex, and the surgeon was Simon Snashel. Interviewees were Claire Marks, Leslie Hamilton and Sue Hill. The series was presented by Murray Anderson Wallace and written and produced by Murray Anderson Wallace and Roland Denning. Professional advisors were Leslie Hamilton and Katerina Sarafidou. The production manager was Leslie Davis. Informed Consent was an Anderson Wallace production for the Royal College of Surgeons of England.